Hello everyone, I'm Jake Dartington, a teacher of insight meditation and mindfulness. And in these podcasts, I'm going to be talking to other teachers about things they're exploring in their own practice and teaching. Today I'm talking to Stephen Batchelor about his new book, The Art of Solitude, and we'll be talking about how the philosopher Montaigne thinks solitude makes us less opinionated. I started to realize that Montaigne wasn't just a good model for someone who practiced solitude, but for someone who, who pushed the idea of true solitude or inner solitude to being able to live without opinions and views. We'll be discussing Stephen's experiences with psychedelics. This was part of the subculture that, uh, out of which we went off to India and uh, started practicing TM or doing Hare Krishna or whatever it might have been. And we'll explore why he left the structure of his book to chance. I wrote the sections pretty much independently, four separate essays. And then, when that was all done, I subjected the whole thing to a set of chance operations. Stephen has been a really important teacher for me for many, many years. And I first came across his work in 1997 in uh, Buddhism Without Beliefs. And in this uh, work, the agnostic or non-dogmatic approach he was putting forward was really helpful for me in finding an approach to Dharma practice that really worked for me, that didn't require me to adopt a whole belief system. And this more sceptical approach to the Buddhist tradition has been something Stevens explored in books like Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist and in After Buddhism. So I was really interested to hear about what he was writing in this new work. And I began by asking him what he meant by this phrase, the art of solitude. Well, uh, solitude uh, has, for me, it has two quite distinctive dimensions. It has the obvious one, which is physical solitude. In other words, you find yourself locked down because of coronavirus and it's just you in your flat. And that's obviously for many people what solitude would then mean. But uh, probably everyone who's had the experience of physical solitude over the last months may also have found that they're not very good at being alone and that when they are alone, they're not alone because they're filled with all kinds of voices in their heads all sorts of company, all of your old friends and teachers and lovers and children and husbands and wives and so on are all chattering merrily away. And even when that dies down, you find that you're chattering not so merrily perhaps, but neurotically to yourself. So the physical solitude in that sense becomes, as it were, a kind of metaphor for a deeper kind of solitude, which we might call uh, inner solitude or spiritual solitude, which is actually what the Buddha calls it. The Buddha makes this distinction too. Kaya viveka, bodily solitude. Chitta viveka, mental or spiritual solitude. And you find in Montaigne, who I've written about in this book, also distinguishes between solitude in the general sense and what he calls true solitude. Mm. And for Montaigne's true solitude and the Buddha's spiritual solitude are, I think, the same. Yes. And you'll find this in Christian mysticism, too. Uh, there's a, I quote a passage by um, Catherine of Siena, I think. Uh, she makes that same distinction. You can be alone in your cell as a nun, but you need to build a cell within yourself where you can, you know, open yourself to the to God in a in a Christian sense. Yes. So 
um, as someone who's practiced meditation for a long time, um, I'm very familiar with what uh, I'm very familiar with trying to be alone by myself um, without feeling uh, despondent or distracted. And um, that, I think, is very much at the core of any kind of contemplative life, is that we need to calm our chattery mind. Um, but more than that, we also need to somehow find a way in which we could be entirely content. It's enough to just sit there by ourselves and just watch our breath or feel the sensations in our body or whatever object of meditation we may be reflecting on, and that's enough. Yeah. We don't need external stimuli uh, in order to feel alive, nor do we need physical solitude in order to feel alone. Yes. So, so at, at times then the physical solitude is a kind of doorway into this solitude yeah. as, as a way of, of being. Yeah. And so yeah, then absolutely, yeah. you're saying that this capacity to be on your own or to find this solitude and for that to be enough, that was bringing back to me a kind of vague memory. I don't know if you can remember who said it, the person that, that all the problems in the world are caused mm -hmm. by, the inability to sit on your own in a, in a room quietly. That's right. You know, that, that sense of, uh, yeah, not being able to be at ease with ourselves then causes yeah. problems outwardly yeah that you. was uh, another frenchman pascal oh wonderful i Blaise thought I, I had a feeling that you might know the uh, the reference there so i kind of took although it, took strangely a bit of i don't cite it in the book no oh well there we go i okay. have cited it in other books <laughs> but yeah no that statement by pascal all of the suffering of humanity has its roots in our inability to sit quietly in a room yes yes and that catches it very, very well. Yeah. And the other thing that came to my mind as I was reflecting on this kind of idea of solitude is how the capacity to be on our own and to be at ease on our own is also what enables us to engage effectively with others. Would, I mean, would you agree with that? Because again, that was bringing mm -hmm. to my mind the your first book, which was Alone with Others. I wonder if the capacity mm -hmm. to really be on our own and to be at ease on our own is also what enables us to be open and you know, engaged with other people. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I completely agree with that. Um, and I think it's, again, more than being open and being engaged with... Um, because, you know, we may do that a lot of the time anyway. But the, the, the real question becomes, you know, how are we being open to and engaging with others? Is it just we adopt, you know, a functional social persona where we know how to play the role, we know how to work in a particular setting? Um, that to me is, you know, it, it's not being utterly true to your utterly true to yourself what i think the practice of solitude does whether it's meditation or art or whatever it might be prayer uh, is that it clears a space within yourself it opens up uh uh yeah an inner domain um that also is freed from all of those things that get in the way of our own authenticity in our relationships with others we don't is it were pretend we don't feel we we have to sort of put on a show or put on an act mm -hmm. uh, when we come much more close to the the authenticity of our own experience and and the inner stillness and clarity that that can 
be uh, that can be developed through meditation, then I think we're also much more sensitized to our rapport with others. And we're, in a sense, no longer needing to hold on to certain opinions and views about ourselves or certain things that we want to impress others with. Uh, there's a greater capacity uh, to be more uh, honest, uh, to be more frank, uh, to be more in tune uh, with the other person. And so you get in, um, in some forms of Mahayana Buddhism the idea that the Buddha is the person or a Buddha is the one who's able to uh, be, f be fully real for themselves or have to have achieve their own fulfillment and at the same time their existence in the world fulfills meaning for others, those with whom they interact. And that's considered to be the goal, not just to have attained some peace within yourself or some enlightenment within yourself, yeah. but through that capacity uh, to be alone, we also cultivate, I think, a greater uh, inner courage and openness to be more authentically with others. Yes. And, and yes, going back to the, uh, the latter part of your question, I wrote a, a book in, which was published in 1983 called uh, Alone with Others. And um, that was my first self-authored book. I published some translations before that. And it's true that this current book, The Art of Solitude, is returning to that source. And... Um, this is a revisiting of the idea of being alone. And I plan another book, uh, which may not be written for a little while yet, uh, called The Art of Care, which will be a parallel volume. It's not mentioned at all in the Solitude book. But I want to write something in a broadly similar style, in a broadly uh, similar structure uh, that will address that more outward dimension of our being in other words how we care for ourselves and others and the world and society uh, and only these two dimensions together as i've already mentioned can adequately uh, provide a, a sense of fulfillment a sense of completion of what a, a human being is capable of becoming yeah. uh, it requires both these dimensions of our existence to be uh, to be integrated yes and th that feels of such kind of contemporary relevance at the moment and i'm hearing mm. this from so many meditation teachers and practitioners that the image of practice is kind of creating a a private freedom that somehow makes mm -hmm. us kind of aloof from and indifferent to the concerns mm. of the world you know with just everything that's going on in our societies in our mm. world this sense of our practice really leading us into a caring engagement it just seems so important uh, you know particularly in in these times and it makes me it's really interesting now that you mention almost that there's a part two coming it makes me see this book in a different way you know kind of um you know sort of yeah already kind of interested to see what you you say in that but you mentioned something about the style and the structure 
So the art of care will have the same style and structure of of this book. And um, it, it is clear from this book that you kind of introduce a person like Montaigne and then he disappears for a couple of chapters and you talk about other people, maybe Agnes Martin or um, or the Buddha or your experiences on a Goenka retreat, all kinds of things. And then Montaigne comes back. Um, so what was um, what were your thinking around that to kind of... Well, I don't know how to, to describe it respectfully, really, but to sort of dip in and out of these different influences. Um, yeah, what was behind well, structuring the book in that what was way? Behind, <laughs> um, I'll try to be as brief as I can, <laughs> and it's also quite difficult to say this uh, in words without alluding to images. Um, the structure of the book, or the books, let's say, yeah. are based upon um, a series of collage works I've been producing over the past, 25 years now and um, a, a particular set of collage works that I was doing in the last seven or eight years um, were dyads in other words they were uh, they were mo uh, uh, colored mosaics uh, about 48 centimeter square composed entirely of found material stuff that I I just come across you know lying around on the street or you know, tickets people give me to museums, whatever can be stuck on a piece of cardboard. Uh, that becomes the working material for these collages. And I've been designing two col. I've been designing collages uh, for a period of time, at least, uh, as, as dyads, as pairs. And they're both identical in the terms of their overall structure, the number of squares in them, the way they're cut. Um, but one part of the dyad is just primary colours, red, blue, yellow, and white, which are the four Buddhist primary colours. Mm -hmm. And the other dyad, the other part of the dyad, uh, is made up of um, photographs, also found materials, but old photographs, uh, stuff that's got writing on it, text, uh, patterns, designs. And so the two go side by side. One is very pure abstraction the other is the same structure the same plan but instead of abstract colors it's got some more content to it and i think it's through doing those dyads that i started to think in terms of producing a pair of books that would likewise be dyadic in structure and would also be similar in the sense that they're constructed in the same way got the same number of pieces organized in the same plan, uh, but the content is very different. And so the art of solitude uh, is, as it were, a kind of collage uh, based on just primary colors, whereas the art of care will be like a kind of collage, the same size, same shape, but with more representational uh, imagery within it, which takes one, as it were, much more into the into the world that you can recognize that you're part of rather than just red, yellow, blue, white, which are you know, non-representative uh, mm. ideas. So th that's the way that the two books are loosely uh, comparable. But the element that also comes into play is that of chance operations, and so the um, I wrote uh, the Art of Solitude has four essays, four parts, uh, each of which are of identical length, uh, and they're each of which have eight sections. So you have uh, eight 
essays on eight sections on Montaigne, eight sections on meditation and so on. And um, so I wrote the sections pretty much independently, four separate essays. And then when that was all done, I subjected the whole thing to a set of chance operations. Uh, and it's too complicated to explain exactly oh. how I did it, but it involved the female members of Martine's family. In other <laughs> words, my mother-in-law, my sisters-in-law, my nieces, and so on. And they were asked to draw, to, to put their hand into a bag and take out a coloured marker, a chip, a sort of token, as it were. And that was what determined the sequence of the chapters. Wow. So the way in which these girls pulled out by pure random randomness, they had nothing, no knowledge about the book, no knowledge of what was going on. We did it as a, a Christmas party game about mm. two or three years ago. And uh, if you look at the very end of the book and it says acknowledgements, it says, I'm deeply ingratitude to the daughters of fortune. I call them. Ah. You'll find that on a page at the back. And, they, and, they, and then I adhered to exactly their sequences. Um, so I had no control over it. Mm. So chance operations are also what I use in organising my collages. Mm. Uh, I don't decide, I don't make a conscious choice, I'm going to put a blue there and a red there. And a, no, it, it comes out largely random. There's a basic structure that is pre format it as it were but then the way that structure then serves as a template for the organization of its content is to some extent not entirely but to some extent governed by chance operations mm. so that in a sense takes me the author out of control yeah. I, I i'm no longer controlling exactly what's going on i'm allowing chance karma, whatever you call it, uh, to uh, determine the, um, uh, the sequence of the chapters. That's a fascinating procedure. And, and I, because I imagine if I were writing a book, that one of the pleasures of being able to write a book would be that I could put the chapters in exactly the order that I wanted. In other words, that that might be what kind of draws me to it. Yeah, this is a chance to say what I want to say. And, and that feeling of having control over the uh, structure would be really, um, yeah, part of what might make me want to do it. So I'm really fascinated that you're actually relinquishing that. Um, to some extent, it, yes. it, you'll notice in the chapters on Montaigne, for example, that I adhere to the chronology. Yes. Uh, I don't have his death at the beginning, for example. No. So I designed a chance operation uh, uh, model that allows me to preserve chronology, but it doesn't allow me to determine what particular chapter will follow any other particular chapter. That I don't know. Yes. So when I'm, th th there are consequences to this, <laughs> yes. as, as, as you've already <laughs> guessed. In other words, when I'm writing a chapter, and the chapters are very short, they're about a thousand words, about three pages, four pages. When I write that chapter, I can have no knowledge of what will have just come before. When I'm writing it, I don't know how it's going to mm. pan out in the end, you see. I also have no idea what chapter will follow, what theme or whatever. I just have no idea. All I do know, and this is, again, a, a thing I've calculated, is that you will never find two chapters of the same essay uh, following each other. Yeah. So that, that, that is an impossibility. 
if, if the chapter if there's a chapter on Montaigne, you can know for certain that the chapter before and the chapter after won't be on Montaigne. Mm. Um, I that guess, I, that so in other words, it yeah. means that you have to treat every little chapter as though it were a standalone piece, mm. because I can't build on what's gone in the yes, chapter yes. before, and I can't set people up for what's coming in the following chapter, which is what we usually do. Yes, yes. And the chapters are almost like sort of almost conveniences that we can pause and then go on, take the argument in another way. So what that means is you have to uh, really treat each particular chapter as a piece of work in its own right. Mm. It's more like a collection of poems in that sense, Mm. I think rather than a a, a sustained argument. But because, you know, in a lot of modern and postmodern literature, people have been doing that. This is not a new idea. Uh, William Burroughs came up with this in the 50s and 60s, what he calls the the cut-up technique. (laughs) And uh, he also, he'd write these books, then he'd cut them up and he'd rearrange them by chance operations following Cage and others in music. Same idea. So I'm I'm borrowing from that too. Well, you've, you've inspired me to go back and, and, and look at the book again in the light of kind of knowing that. I mean, that there are all these subtleties going on that I, I hadn't read. Um, uh, one of the things that I really liked about the book and I, I'm struck by as well is how you move between things that are really quite intensely personal and then things that can seem more philosophical or abstract, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and as someone who's followed your work and teaching for for really quite some time. I mean, one thing that was new to me, perhaps you've spoken about it in talks, was your interest in in psychedelics. Uh Um, And you do, you mentioned right at the beginning of the book that you don't have a kind of general, you don't want to advocate them in general. And then later in the book, there's actually a a paragraph or so where you express some doubt about the kind of wisdom of a liberal mm-hmm. attitude uh, to these. Um, so I guess that was my first thing I'd be interested to explore about that was, you know, did you kind of pause and hesitate to think, is this something I want to be more public about and, and write about? Mm. Yes, I did. <laughs> because, um, I mean, clearly you're stepping in, as a Buddhist writer, Yes, you know, I'm stepping into an area that's at best ambiguous, but for most, for many Buddhists would be downright, you know, just out of court. I mean, just not really uh, includes, you know, not really something you can legitimately consider as a practice of, of Dharma. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm breaking a precept, if you like. But this, of course has to be seen in the larger context of one's life. And in my own case, and I know it's true for many of my peers, what brought us to Buddhism and meditation and philosophy in the first place was psychedelics. Uh, That, especially in the late 60s, early 70s, this was part of the subculture that uh, out of which we went off to India and uh, started practicing TM or doing Hare Krishna or whatever it might have been. In other words, um, I was in some ways interested into, you know, re-examining the sources of my own journey. And I wrote this book starting from when I turned 60. 60. Um, And uh, during that period from about 60 to 65, I then participated in three shamanic ceremonies, one in Mexico with peyote, and two in Europe with uh, ayahuasca. And to some extent, I just wanted to go back and uh, and see whether after these 40 years of 
involvement almost you know, it's all i've ever done is full-time involvement in buddhist practice and study and teaching and so on i i i i still honored very much those experiences of my late teenage years uh, that sort of opened my mind to another way of of being in the world and i often hear amongst my peers when they talk about these things they say well yes when we were teenagers we smoked pot and we took acid and it was really cool and it opened our mind to all these new possibilities and then we went to india and we got a teacher and we started meditating and we left all that stuff behind well you leave it behind at one level but something that's played a significant role in your life you never entirely can leave it behind it's it, it, it's it may actually have a value for you it's something that might be quite precious for you it might have been the introduction to experiences that really you know li- literally blew your mind and that's what took you on your quest and i felt i owed it to those traditions to uh to to return uh, to see what would happen now 40 years on um, the difference was that I didn't want to just get hold of a pill of LSD and take it in my living room listening to Bach. Uh, but I wanted to take these uh, substances in, uh, in, in, in ceremonial, one might even say religious uh, settings, under the guidance of a shaman and utilizing not chemicals, but um, natural plant products cactus in the case of peyote and uh, a, a mixture of a, a leaf and a vine in the case of ayahuasca. So I wanted to connect with the sources of that whole spiritual movement as well, which I think makes a big difference. I mean, what we you know, we all, it was already clear in the 60s that there was a, you had to recognize the, the set and the setting of these experiences with psychedelic drugs. It's not just a question of taking a pill and letting certain neurochemical things happen in your brain. No, that's part of it, and a part of it you can't do without, but it's always contextualized within the frame of your motives and in the frame of the place and the company in which you are taking these substances and that becomes all the more uh, central when you're participating in a, a conscious a shamanic ceremony rooted in a native indian tradition um and you know at the very beginning of the ceremony everyone states their motives at the end of the ceremony we spend some time you know, digesting what's happened, what what we've learned. And also the whole ceremony is conducted in silence. And um, especially with the ayahuasca ceremonies that are now being uh, practiced in in Europe and America, um, there's also a lot of meditation involved. Uh, you, You start with meditation, you have meditation in the middle, you have meditation at the end. It's all coming together into a new kind of synthesis. And I think in some ways the usage of uh, uh, well let's plant medicines is the word i prefer the use of plant medicines might become a kind of contemporary tantric type adjunct to more conventional practice and um what I, you see, I, I think one of the weaknesses of the argument, well, we did all this stuff in the 60s, then we learned to meditate, and then we really got into the real thing, is that 
Yes, that's true. I, I, and I would, my own life bears witness to that as well. But at the same time, I also know when I get into a meditative space, it's my meditative space. I'm pretty familiar with it. It kind of reappears each time I sit cross-legged on my cushion. It's very helpful, very valuable, makes my life very meaningful. But it's kind of, in a way, become my own. Yeah. With... If you go into a shamanic ceremony and you take a little cup of ayahuasca, uh, you get for a period of seven, seven or eight hours into an altered state of consciousness, which is not one that you're familiar with from your meditation. It allows you to meditate on your meditation from another perspective. It allows you to somehow suspend a lot of your habitual beliefs and thoughts and ideas about this, that, and the other, including all your Buddhist stuff. Uh, and to take a kind of an honest, uncompromising uh, look at your situation as a human being on this earth. Mm. Now, I suspect if you did this on a weekly basis, that effect would also disappear. Yeah. And I've not, I've actually not, I've not taken, apart from the three ceremonies in the book, I've not taken, yeah. you know, anything else since, since then, which is now more than two years, I think. Yeah. Um, so I'm not particularly into the experience, but I have found that under the right settings, uh, having the opportunity to get into a frame of mind in which you can really take a close look at who you are and what your life's been about and what really matters for you, and these are the questions I brought to these ceremonies, I found it very, very valuable. It served both on the one hand as a sort of a confirmation of many of the choices I'd taken in my life. It also felt very much like a sort of purification. Yes. And in the case of uh, the ayahuasca, that involved a lot of vomiting, physical purging, which is very unpleasant. Yes, that really uh, comes... Nonetheless, I, I was going to say that really comes across in your book, actually, the kind of yeah, the physical unpleasantness of, uh, of oh. kind of doing that and, and then what, what happened. Yeah. Um, and but you really feel then that you did learn something from doing that that you you wouldn't have learned from, say, doing intensive meditation or intensive psychotherapy or um, I don't know, other things that we might do, that it was opening up another perspective that wasn't available in any in any other way, would you say? It's so difficult to answer that question. I mean, the only honest answer can, is I don't really know. Yes. I mean, I, might, I have done lots of long retreats and all those things. Yes. And uh, I describe, in fact, my exploration of the jhanas, yes. which we might come on to that. But you see, what I learned through doing jhana practice, which I've never done before either, um, was that basically jhana practice is, is, is a way in which we get the body to release certain neurochemicals serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, and things like that. So you can't really start arguing that meditation is somehow chemical-free. It can't be, because we are chemical beings. Uh, DMT, which is the active uh, alkaloid in ayahuasca, is supposedly present in the human body in very small trace elements. Yes. So it's it's already part of us. It's yes. not as though we're taking something foreign. I remember, yeah, that, that chapter, the uh, passage in your book where you say something like that whether those chemicals 
are generated inwardly or introduced outwardly to you is not ethically significant. Yeah, that the, the, these chemicals that have an effect and and um, mm. yeah, and you also um, say that that having done this, you you yeah. lost all interest in alcohol. That was one yeah. thing I found interesting, and in, in the kind of my me with my measurable effects head on. <laughs> um, but I was also really intrigued by a sentence where you said you'd kind of come to the end of Dharma Wars. <laughs> and I thought, I thought, oh gosh, there's something in that. And I, I was then telling a story around that, you know. So, for instance, the oh. part of you who's for many years been arguing that, say, teachings on rebirth are not so essential, and advocating a more, you know, agnostic or secular mm-hmm. approach to Buddhism, and and really, what seems from the outside to have driven you uh in many ways that i don't know i'd be interested to know what was behind that that was my assumption but the end of the dharma wars sounded rather peaceful (laughs) um yeah well that's just basically a report from what the last ayahuasca ceremony uh brought to me was i really did feel deep down that i don't need to do that anymore Yes, it's not really me. It's not. It's some agenda that I've been somehow drawn into, uh, and you know all of you know all of my training as a Tibetan Buddhist monk, the debates and all of the discussions you have in Dharma communities. And as soon as you step outside orthodoxy and you start querying certain basic beliefs like rebirth and karma and so on, then you end up basically having to sort of fight your corner and being criticized and all those things. And that kind of just stirs you up even more and you keep sort of whamming on about this stuff. And um, I do think there is a value in that. I think the Buddhist tradition has actually got a very rich you know, history of critical analysis and debate. That's valuable. But at a certain point, I think you have to let go of that and um, somehow just focus on what, in fact, is your, you know, what are you, you know, the, the, the insights and the values that matter most to you and how they contribute to your leading what is hopefully a good life. That's all that matters in the end, mm. um, rather than am I right or uh, I'm right, they're wrong. Mm. That kind of stuff can go. And the text on which I base the whole book, called the Four Eights, the the that we find in the Atakavaga, is very very strong on that. Uh, it, it's all about uh, letting go of views, letting go of opinions, not thinking I'm right, they're wrong, not being attached to notions of truth, for example. Yes. It, it's very very powerfully stated, and in some ways that's why that body of poems, those Four Eights, constitute the overall framework of the book because what i'm trying to do in a way is not is to actually try to show what a life would look like were it lived without views and opinions yes yes and so the art of solitude is a is not just a report about things that i've done and aren't they interesting but it's actually an attempt to give voice um to to find my own voice really uh, in in a much more um, it, it, outside of it, the Buddhist frame within which I'm known. Yes. To try to step outside of that and just to try to speak one's own truth, mm. I guess. And that, that sense and, of, um, of living without views and opinions or living free from them, I think that was something that interested Montaigne as well, wasn't it? And yeah, absolutely. Is, is that, was that what really yeah. wanted, you know, made you want to bring Montaigne into your into your conversation, into your, your work? 
Again, it's very difficult for me to actually recollect what were the sort of the chronological sequences of interest. I've been, yes. I've been in, fascinated by Montaigne for many, many, many years. Mm. Um, so it's not as though he's someone new to me at all. Uh, I've been reading him for a long time. But it took me a while to realize exactly where he was going philosophically because the philosophical material in Montaigne is in one of the longest essays. It's actually a book in its own right called An Apology for Raymond Sebond, which most people probably don't read. It's, a, it's, it's, it's very dense. It's very technical. Um, but there he outlines his whole philosophical strategy, and it has to do with uh, trying to live in 16th century France as a Pyrrhonian skeptic. In other words, uh, someone who followed the um, ideas of Pyrrho, uh, fourth century BC skeptical philosopher, who actually did go to India, although I don't, or Montaigne would have known that actually. Um, he did go to India. He may have drawn his ideas from early Buddhist materials. That's quite possible. Um, but once I started making those connections, I started to realize that Montaigne wasn't just a good model for someone who practiced solitude, but for someone who, who pushed the idea of true solitude or inner solitude to being able to live without opinions and views. So the, the, the deepest solitude is one where we're no longer uh, cluttered with our own views and opinions. That's what prevents us from being alone is because we hold on tightly, often to all kinds of beliefs. You know, rebirth mm. is true, you know. Mm. Uh, you know. It must be true because the Buddha said so and Bhikkhu Bodhi said so. So and that actually prevents you from really being alone mm. uh, because you're, 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 you're locked into views. And I think at the deepest level, it's relatively easy, I think, to get into a state of mind where you're not being pushed and pulled by your fears and your likes and your dislikes. It's much more challenging uh, to be alone without having an attachment or an investment in particular views and opinions. That's much, 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 much more challenging. And so Montaigne, I think, is a good, is someone who serves as a role model. He also serves as a role model in the writing of this book, because the way he writes his essays is, again, kind of chaotic. I don't know if you've read Montaigne's essays recently, but they kind of go all over the place. And sometimes they give you know, the essay has a title. And the title basically has nothing to do with what follows. And Montaigne admits this. And he also admits in a passage that I quote in the book that uh, if Pyrrhonian skepticism is to really take hold in our lives, then it'll mean having to find a different way of speaking, a different way of writing. Mm -hmm. that we can't just keep on speaking and writing and thinking in the same way. Um, if we're genuinely going to let go of views, if we're going to give up the Dharma wars, that's inviting us to actually find a new voice. Mm -hmm. And that, I feel, is what we need in this day and age, not just as Buddhists, but I think we're really challenged by many of the crises of our time, environmental crises, social crises, and so on and so forth, to, to, to really step back, to find our own authenticity where we really stand on these issues and seek to respond to them in a way that's not predetermined by you know, views and opinions, all very good views and opinions perhaps, but nonetheless not really ideas that are genuinely our own. 
And I know this is a it's, it's a big ask, as it were, to embark on such a venture. But I think anyone who takes their who, who leads an examined life, as Socrates said, uh, is, is in a sense called upon to you know take those risks uh, mm. to find a courage within themselves to to speak out. Yes. Um, and again, it's not just a purely solitary activity. Yes. It'll be through different voices, you know, coming to the surface in these times mm. that might help to sort of guide our communities and our societies into a different way of being. Yes. As you, you speak, it brings to mind a, what for me feels like a tension. Maybe, maybe it isn't for you. I'd be interested to hear your, your views on it. Between the part of me that wants to step back from all views and opinions and to um yeah that kind of bracketing off and not to be so kind of caught in the whirlpool of uh, mm. the kind of debates and disputes that come from clinging to opinions but then when i also think about acting in the world i wonder if sometimes it feels like that that involves more like taking a stand on something mm. and mm. saying yeah this is this is what i think and um I mean, you know, for from the UK, this may sound a parochial mm -hmm. example to others, but I really felt this dilemma, say, when the Brexit referendum was on, mm -hmm. that there was part of me that really wanted and did take a side and say, yeah, this mm -hmm. is what I think, this is important, I don't think these other views are right or whatever. And the part of me that really wanted to to kind of really understand the whole thing what was going on on both sides why did other people think differently to me what happened when i didn't cling to my own views so much so i wonder about that is is there a kind of tension between letting go of views and really taking action yeah i think that i think it's a very healthy tension mm. uh, but yes it is a tension I, I think if you take letting go of views completely literally you probably wouldn't end up doing anything yes uh, the, the point of letting go to views is yeah, the point of letting go of views is to a large extent um, becoming aware of the views that you have that you're not aware of. Mm -hmm. And I think the Brexit is a very good example. When I read the Brexit news uh, the day after the referendum, uh, I went into a state of shock and I, and I felt angry and I felt really depressed. And that then led me to think but why am i so angry why am i so depressed what am i you know what do i think is being lost you know what's wrong with this and that led me to see how i was basically bought into a whole set of views and opinions of basically people in the same stratum of society as myself with the same sort of uh, you know educational and intellectual background um and um, I'd just, un, you know, just uncritically gone along with a whole raft of views and opinions um, that on consideration I might actually agree with, but I don't actually feel that at that point it was a, these were freely chosen views I'd adopted. They'd become part of my kind of identity, the sort of person I am, at so deep a level that I couldn't barely conscious of it in a way. So that was a very good lesson. Yes. And I have, I think, adjusted my views since then. I have realized that, you know, my anger was driven often because people were basically saying, no, you can't have that toy anymore. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, um, but the, to me, the question is, the, the, the whole of the path is to me, the Buddhist path, the Dharma path, uh, 
uh, operates on two primary primary two primary dynamic principles. On the one hand, the principle of letting go, and on the other hand, the principle of cultivation, of bringing into being, the second task and the fourth task. Mm. Uh, and that repeats endlessly through the suttas. In other words, our practice is letting go of what's getting in the way of you know, leading a fulfilling life. And again, with Brexit, I did have to let go of opinions and views I'd had. They weren't helping. They were just sort of fixed points that were not really negotiable. Mm -hmm. But the world had changed. They were no longer adequate responses to the situation at hand. How do I respond appropriately to the situation at hand? That's the practice of the Eightfold Path. That's what do I think? What do I say? What do I do? And life situations call us to respond all the time. Hmm. We don't have a. It's not. It's not that so we have an option. We even if our choice is to have nothing to do with something, it's still a response. Hmm. To go off in a cave and meditate for the rest of my life, it's still a response. Yes. It's still something we're saying. This is a good thing to do. Yes. We're saying it. We may not say it in words. We're saying it in our deeds. So I feel that uh, views and opinions are one of these. They're almost like a kind of a. Um, it's the fluid in which we live, the oxygen in which human society inhabits. And we need to somehow learn to move more lightly and freely and creatively and imaginatively within this. And at the same time, constantly refining our, you know, our moral compass, mm. our ethical sensibility, our, our deepest sense of what is, is good, uh, of what is worthwhile, of what needs to be done. But I don't think you can really get to that vivid sense of the good without suspending all sorts of beliefs and opinions and views that are kind you're carrying along a bit like the Buddha's raft, the yes. sodden raft of <laughs> views and opinions. You have to put that down in order to be able to come afresh to the situations that present themselves in life, the unprecedented situations. Old answers are probably not going to work. Yeah. Old beliefs are only going to keep us stuck where we are. Yeah. So I think that's the real challenge, mm. to be able to live within the tension of letting go of what's no longer useful and having the courage and the imagination to develop and to cultivate what we in our hearts feel to be an appropriate response to the situation at hand. Mm. And that might change too, yes. like the raft analogy again. Mm. It's all provisional in some ways. It's dealing with situations that you know we can... You know, we confront in actual existence. Yes. And that, that brings to my mind, again, the ox herding pictures that you also yeah, talk about you. in Zen, you know, yeah. So mm -hmm. the, those, those uh, the middle stages, but the final stage is returning to the marketplace that's with, right. those, with those gifts. Yeah, that's, it's, the, it's the ox herding pictures are a very good visual way of picturing yeah. this process. Yeah. Very good, yeah. Good. Uh, and it's what we're coming towards the end of our, our conversation today I was just kind of thinking about all of the things that you've done both in that book but maybe if it's not too grand you know in your, in your life in general you know the, the different things that you've explored to answer this question of a good life you know the Tibetan tradition the Korean Zen tradition the mm -hmm. Vipassana the philosophy the art um, the jhana practice the psychedelics I mean it's quite a quite a collection isn't it when you mm -hmm. <laughs> begin to to kind of look back on all of those things but my sense is in some way there's there's a theme that connects those right this question of 
well, what is the best way to live? And, you know, what is a good life? I, I wonder if that's informed all of those things you've done. And I was just wondering, as we come towards the end, you know, where you are now and what's really kind of firing you up among um, your quest for, well, for the good life? I, again, I, I'm a writer uh, and that becomes, you know, I realise more and more as I get older that that's really where my skill set lies is in writing. And uh, I'm more and more aware of, you know, I only may have 10 or so years if I'm lucky. Uh, and since each book takes four or five years to write, that's a couple of books. So it's really, um, you know, I, I, I measure my life in terms of writing projects that are still conceivable. So the coronavirus lockdown was, in a sense, a writer's greatest gift i mean here we are three months on i've not left this house really since then and uh, i've started another book and this book is at the moment called an ethics of uncertainty which actually taps exactly onto the points you were making it's how can we be ethical on the one hand which entires commitment and so forth and at the other side to acknowledge in all honesty that we really don't know anything at all there's a great uncertainty about so many of the things we understand about ourselves, about the world. How can you square that circle? How can you live without views and opinions and yet be utterly ethical? And my argument in this book will be that that was the genius of Gautama, mm -hmm. the Buddha, was that he, was, he, he found a, a way of being in the world that had let go of opinions and yet because of that, had optimized his compassion and his love for others, for the world, for life. And that's what I'm trying to articulate in this current book. Uh, and I see it as a sort of a bridge between the art of solitude and the art of care. Mm. I thought I might start writing the introduction to the art of care, but in fact it's ballooned out into a book of its own, yeah. uh, a book entirely of its own now. So I started and, today um, thinking I was going to talk to you about one book and then it turned into, there was a sequel and now it's a trilogy. So yeah, now it's a trilogy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, there's, there's three books on this same, uh, oh, wonderful. you know, on this same vector, yeah. as it were, yeah. Oh, it's, it's really wonderful to talk to you and yeah i feel quite you know, really inspired to kind of hear the different um directions but also the connections between these different things that you're working on and uh yeah really really look forward to seeing what's next from you and uh yeah okay be a pleasure to be a pleasure to read what, what what's next <laughs> thanks so much Stephen. well that's a pleasure jake it's been wonderful exploring these things with you <laughs>